This is Amy Sachenko, and you are listening to Apple Talks, a podcast that brings stories in Apple Magazine to life to help you and your family lead healthier and happier lives. Today, you'll hear from Nicole Sheeran. She's talking to a group of teachers at the Calgary Teachers Convention in 2017. Sheeran is the Scientific Director and Senior Program Officer of the Alberta Family Wellness Initiative. They mobilize knowledge about early brain development and its connection to lifelong physical and mental health. Together with the Palix Foundation, they're creating innovative solutions for complex social problems such as addiction. As a neuroscientist, much of Sheeran's research has focused on experience-based brain development, or how a healthy brain gets built. All of your thoughts, emotions, all of your behaviors, they stem from your brain. And what we now know about brain development is that the experiences that we have, the environments in which we grow up, um, really shape that developing brain in ways which can set us on life course trajectories, either for good or for ill. So when we think about how a brain develops, Um, You can think about it kind of like the way you would build a house, where you have to lay a strong foundation before you frame up the the walls and run all the wiring and do the plumbing. In the same way, the brain needs to lay a strong foundation of the most basic neural circuits which govern our most basic skills. Those form first, and they form the platform on which more complex neural circuits governing more complex skills develop. And just as when you're building a house where the quality of the materials and the timing of the construction makes a difference in the same way the quality of the experiences that we have in those early years and the timing of those experiences as well also makes a difference in terms of the overall construction. She explains that dense neural networks are built in stages. Things like our vision, hearing, and taste wire up first, just before and just after birth. Once those circuits are formed, our language abilities get built on top. And then another neural circuit that's essential for executive function, such as being able to pay attention, solve problems, and set goals, get built on top of those. So she says there's a kind of sequential skill begetting skill that occurs over time. Each of these circuits are wiring and developing in different areas of the brain and at different times, but they all lay the foundation for more complex skills. And as we age, there's a decline in these connections. It's a process called pruning, and it's a normal developmental process where our brain helps to create more efficient neural circuits that process information. Really our genes that are telling our cells when to reach out and start making connections with other cells, but it's our experiences which dictate which of those connections solidify, get very sturdy and remain, and which of those connections get pruned away to create more efficient neural circuits. So it happens in a use it or lose it kind of fashion. What that means is if we're using particular connections a lot, they get sturdy and stable and remain. The ones that we don't use very much, they weaken and they die off. They get pruned away. 
So what does this mean for a young child? Well, think about a young child growing up in a stable two-parent family uh, with access to high-quality childcare. There is uh, lots of opportunities to get together and play with their peers. There's a safe playground nearby that they can go to and get some physical activity. And when they get to school, the teachers are all very attentive. They pay lots of individual attention to each child. So that child's going to be having a set of experiences that really help them practice some of the key pro-social um, uh, neural circuits and behaviors that we know are going to help them and give them a strong foundation for their later development. They're going to be practicing things like forming attachment-based relationships with the adults around them. They're going to be practicing things like early language and literacy, getting along with their peers. They're going to be practicing uh, things like being able to control their emotions because someone's going to be there for them when they're upset, helping them practice. So that child is going to be strengthening those key neural circuits, which are going to provide that strong foundation for their later success. Now imagine a child growing up in a different kind of environment. So perhaps there's domestic violence in the home. Maybe the child's being emotionally abused or physically abused. Um, there's no access to childcare. In fact, Generally speaking, there's no childcare at all. The child gets left alone for long periods of time when the adults aren't there. There is no opportunity to play with their peers on a regular basis. The playground down the street is full of gang activity and drug dealing, and so it's not a safe place to go. And when they finally get to school, the teachers are all busy and they don't pay a lot of individual attention to each child. So that child's going to be having a very different set of experiences, right? They're going to be practicing certain skills and behaviors that we don't actually want to reinforce in terms of forming that strong foundation. They're probably going to be practicing things like um, fear and aggression. Uh, they might be practicing solutions to problems that are um, effective for them when they're very, very young, such as retreating from any sort of conflict, but that are not going to stand them in good stead when they're in their 30s and potentially having a conflict with a co-worker or with a romantic partner. partner. That's not going to help them out. Not only that, they don't have the same opportunity to practice the skills that the first child had. So they don't get the same kind of opportunity to practice early language and literacy. They don't get the same kind of opportunity to practice getting along with their peers or controlling their emotions. In this way, that pruning process, which is occurring during those early years of, of life, is shaping those two children's brains in very, very different ways, setting one likely on a trajectory for good outcomes and the other possibly on a trajectory for poor outcomes. All right, so I've used the word experience a lot um, already in this presentation. There's only one kind of experience, though, that I'm going to focus on, even though pretty much all of the experiences we have can potentially affect our brains. But there's only one kind of experience that we know of where during the developmental period, if it's absent, you can see deficits across multiple functional domains for kids, and that's social interactions. So you can think about the social interactions that a child has with a caring adult as kind of like the serve and return that goes on between two people playing a game of tennis. But instead of passing a ball back and forth, uh, different sorts of activity passes back and forth, different kinds of communication pass back and forth. And what that does is it ramps up a child's enthusiasm for whatever the heck it is that they're doing and gets them wanting to do it again. 
So in this way, what they do is they start practicing over and over and over certain really basic foundational skills. And um, certain return looks different depending on the developmental age and stage of a child. So for example, if we think about um, an infant, so a baby who's less than a year old, um, what could serve and return look like? Well, it might look like gazing at a particular object, maybe uh, if you imagine this is a stuffy toy or a rattle, maybe gazing at that, and the return would look like the adult noticing their interest and trying to engage them with that toy. How many of you have ever, you know, picked up a stuffy toy that a baby was looking at and waggled it in their face? course. Yeah, everyone trying to make them smile, trying to engage their attention. And when the baby looks away, what do we do? We try and re-engage them, right? We put it over in their field of view again. We try and re-engage their attention. And we often can do that over multiple times until the baby gets sick of it and sort of tells us, no, I'm done now. And then we disengage. We wait for another serve from that child and then follow that up with a particular kind of activity. And what that's doing in that example of trying to engage a child, you know, in terms of focusing their attention on something is exactly that. We're helping them practice a really basic attentional skill before they're even a year old. So serve and return is really important in helping kids practice those really basic foundational skills. Serve and Return gives kids the opportunity to develop social, emotional, and cognitive skills. Sheeran says we need all three skills to succeed in life because together they form another critical skill called executive function. What executive function does for us is really act like an air traffic control system in our brains. So just as at a busy airport where you've got all the planes taking off and landing all at the same time and the controller has to be able to pay attention to a number of things, they have to be able to follow lots of rules, follow detailed protocols, they have to be able to shift when something unexpected happens like that flight from Denver that you didn't know was coming in, um, all of it without losing their cool. In the same way, executive function works like that for us and works like that for a child. It helps them keep track of all the information that's coming at them in their environment. Helps them pay attention to some things but not to others. Helps them uh, follow lots of rules so that they don't have crashes in their own mental airspace. Now we know that executive function comes online very early in life and we know that there are lots of play-based activities that we can do with very, very young children that give them the opportunity to practice those skill sets. Even something as simple as taking turns can help a child practice their inhibitory control, which is a key executive function skill. So what does the research say about executive function? Well, it's one of the best predictors of academic success. Children who are able to sit still in the classroom, follow rules, engage with different types of information, work in groups, and problem solve tend to do better than kids who don't. It's one of the best predictors of employment success. It's what a lot of employers are looking for, right? Creative thinkers, people who can work in teams, people who can solve lots of problems. It's also one of the best predictors of parenting success, parenting for the next generation. If any of you are parents, think about how tough that job is 
when your kids are demanding your attention and you have to do a whole bunch of other things like get dinner on the table amidst all sorts of other distractions and when your children get upset you need to keep your own cool right so that you can help them when they get upset that's what executive function really allows us to do and executive functions located in that prefrontal cortex area that area behind our foreheads and our eyes um, and so it's that frontal cortex area that really houses all of those um, skills. So how does serve and return affect our biology? Well, I told you about the first way. It helps children practice certain really basic skill sets, um, and it helps them strengthen certain key neural circuits. But there's one other way that serve and return exerts its effect, and it's on the expression of our genes. So every cell in our bodies has the same 23,000 or so genes, but not every cell in our body looks the same, right? We've got different cells that perform different functions, and that's because they all have a different complement of genes turned on or a different set of genes turned on that allows them to, for example, be a bone cell or be a red blood cell. But there was some very interesting work in the early 1990s that showed that postnatal experiences also had an influence on the expression of genes. It came from um, a set of studies in rats looking at the quality of the maternal care that they received. And rats who do not receive as high quality maternal care actually um, have uh, some issues with gene expression in their stress response system, making them more vulnerable to stress later on in life because they no longer process or respond to stressful situations in the same way. So we do know that um, serve and return can have a profound impact on the brain in terms of neural circuitry, but those genetic changes as well can potentially drive additional um, change. The last player in brain development is stress. Researchers have known for a long time that children who experience stress have poorer health outcomes throughout life and they're just starting to understand how stress affects our biology. Stress also shapes the architecture of the developing brain, but not all stress is the same. Our stress response system is a learning system. It's important for us to experience some stress in our lives in order to learn basic coping skills. But we can think about stress in terms of three key um, types. The first is called positive stress. So this is a brief activation of the stress response system that comes back to baseline pretty quickly. And the things that cause positive stress are a lot of the things, we think of them anyways, a lot of the things that most kids experience um, without too much trouble. So the first time you're separated from your parent or caregiver, maybe going to school, first day of school, going to a doctor's office, all of those things cause a mild activation of our stress response system. It comes back to baseline pretty quickly. And what it does is it gives a child an opportunity to practice basic coping skills which are with a really, really small challenge. The second kind of stress is called tolerable stress. So this is a serious, albeit um, often temporary, activation of our stress response system. But the key thing to remember with tolerable stress is that it's always buffered by a stable, caring, supportive adult. What that adult does is they help the child calm their fears, they help the child soothe their emotions, their raging emotions, and they teach them more sophisticated coping strategies that they might not know yet. So in that way, the child is buffered 
from any of the sort of the biological effects or a biological imprint that stress can potentially leave on our brains and on our biology. And so the kinds of things that might cause tolerable stress for a child could be pretty severe. So when we think about all of the natural disasters that have happened in this province over the past few years, if children are appropriately supported through those particular types of events, they won't produce any lasting footprint on our biology. But the last kind of stress is the bad guy in the story, and it's called toxic stress. So toxic stress is a prolonged activation of our stress response system. The key here is that the child does not have access to a stable, supportive, caring adult to help them buffer their response to the stress. So that's really that definition of toxic stress. What do we think of as causing toxic, toxic stress? Well, often we think about things like child maltreatment, right? So when uh, that is uh, quite frequently when the person who is supposed to be your stress buffer is often, you know, the source of your toxic stress that often happens within the family. Uh, we can think about other sorts of family dysfunction like witnessing domestic violence or having a parent with an untreated addiction or um, mental health problem can also set up a situation of toxic stress for a child. So how does that stress get under our skins and affect our biology? Well, when we think about toxic stress, when we think about that prolonged activation of our stress response system, you know, we need to think about how our stress response system evolved over time, what it was adapted to do. And what it was adapted to do was help us um, flee or fight immediate threats like a big bear or a cave lion or something like that. It's not really designed to run all of the time in the case of toxic stress for a child who's growing up in an environment where they might be maltreated or where there's something else going on in the home that isn't stopping. So that stress response system, what it does is it ramps up a lot of our peripheral systems, gets our hearts pumping, our breathing faster, um, our blood pressure increases, our, me our metabolism changes. And over time, those systems, they end up with some wear and tear. Right? They're not designed to run that way all of the time. Produces some slow and steady accumulative damage, which does not typically um, get repaired over time. That can make us vulnerable to diseases later on. And the second kind of main way that stress gets under our skins is really through the actions of cortisol. So cortisol is a steroid hormone, um, which, is a re which is released in response to stress. Um, it also helps to shut down that stress response when the threat is gone. But cortisol in and of itself is a little bit toxic to the cells of the brain. It makes those cells fire all the time. They don't like to be that active all of the time. And what they do is they're, they're plastic. They're able to change. They start withdrawing some of their processes so that they don't get as activated by that cortisol. But when you do that, when particular key brain circuits are forming, you can potentially perturb those circuits in ways that you don't expect. They don't necessarily form the way they should. And the cells that are involved in shutting down the stress response system, the same thing happens to them. So they can start to retract their processes. They become less efficient at shutting down that stress response, which means we've got more stress hormones circulating all the time. It's a bit of a vicious circle. It's not all bad news, Sharon says. We can get in front of these future problems by building children's resilience. And so 
you can think about resilience as kind of like a scale where you've got positive experiences on one arm, negative experiences on the other. A resilient outcome means that the scale tips positive, even if you have negative weight on the other side. So in order to make sure that children have those foundations, that ability to tip that scale positive, we need to think about loading up the one side of the arm with as many positive experiences as possible. We need to think about mitigating as many of the toxic stresses or negative experiences on the other arm. And we can also think about this fulcrum, which represents the tipping point of the scale. And think about that as kind of like your genes. It's in a different position for every child because every child gets a different set of genes from their parents. But remember that our genes are not our fate. We can shift the expression of our genes so we can shift the position of the fulcrum as well and make it potentially very, very easy to tip that scale positive. And lastly, you know what? It's not all over by age six. Our brains don't finish maturing until we're about in our mid to late 20s. And so what you see here, this blue area represents the most mature areas of the brain. And what you have is the back of the head here and the nose here. What you're seeing is this back to front maturation of the brain over time. So the last area really to mature is this area right here behind our eyes, behind our forehead. That's the prefrontal cortex. It's the seat of our executive functions. So even though there's a very long window in which negative experiences can have a detrimental effect, it's a really long opportunity, really long window of opportunity in which we can potentially intervene. I'm Amy Sarchenko, and you've been listening to Apple Talks. For more information, visit www.applemag.ca.